Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Civil War Regiments podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Lunsford, and I'm very excited to share with you all this special new episode all about Camp Nelson National Monument in Kentucky. This is a subject I am not familiar with, but I was thrilled to have the opportunity to discuss this topic with three awesome guests. Steve Fan, Chief of Interpretation at Camp Nelson, Will Eichler of Tuber Historic Events, and Jason Brown of Mess Number no. 1, a living history organization. We discussed the history and purpose of Camp Nelson during the war, how it was an enormous supply base and staging area for Union forces, a refugee camp for Unionists and African Americans, as well as a training ground for many USCT regiments. We also discussed the upcoming living history program to commemorate Camp Nelson's 160th anniversary, which will take place on August 12th through the 13th in 2023. This was a lot of fun to record, and there was a lot of hype building around Camp Nelson and Kentucky Civil War sites in general. Enjoy the show, and thank you for listening. Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome to a special new episode of the Civil War Regiments podcast. I'm really excited tonight um, to cover a topic that I'm personally not really familiar with, but uh, tonight we're going to be talking about Camp Nelson National Monument in Kentucky. And uh, it's a relatively new uh, national monument there, and uh, uh, I think uh, fairly recently, and we're going to deep dive into that. But but I have a full panel of guests tonight, and they include Steve Fan, who's the chief of uh, interpretation at Camp Nelson. And we have Will Eichler of the Civil War Digital Digest and Tuber Historic Events. And we have Jason Brown of Mess Number no. 1, a living history organization. And um, I'm really happy to have all of you on tonight. And um, I really hope that I learned something out of this. And I hope all of you listening uh, come away with a greater understanding of a, of a lesser known topic in the war. But thank you all for joining me tonight. Glad happy to be here. To be here. Honored to be here and look forward to chatting with y'all. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks, guys. I, I really appreciate it. And uh, we have a lot to cover tonight, so uh, we'll just dive into it. But uh, I usually like to begin, and I know there's three of you tonight, but uh, I usually like to ask my guest um, to give a brief kind of background into uh, how they discover their interest or, or passion for Civil War history. And um, I'd like to give each of you a little opportunity to talk a little bit uh, background about yourself and how you got interested in history. And and uh, I'll start with you, Steve. Well, again, thanks for having uh, me here, Stephen, and look forward to chatting with you, Jason and Will, as we talk about this, you know, pretty unique topic related to the American Civil War and preparing for the 160th uh, events that we have going on um, in Central Kentucky next year. But yeah, I'd love to answer the question. I get this a lot. You know, when did history or the American Civil War. And I got a pretty unique story. I'm originally from Colorado. My parents are South Vietnamese war refugees. And so I was born um, in Aurora, Colorado, right outside of Denver. And, you know, just one of those kids that grew up and was interested in military history, you know, plastic army toys and GI Joes and things like that. And um, actually in third grade elementary school, we, um, this was kind of the height of you know, Ken Burns and right after Gettysburg had been released and there was also Glory well, a few years before that. So really peak, you know, interest in Civil War um, that would really heighten over the next 10 or 15, even 20 years. We had these Civil War buffs, as we called them, come to our school 
and dress up the fifth graders to do a reenactment, believe it or not, <laughs> in Colorado. Okay. And wow. so I remember our teacher asked us, you know, um, does anyone know anything about the Civil War or does anyone know what the Civil War was? And, you know, being in Colorado, that's not something we really talk about. So he's like, none of us answered. And he was like, I'm going to show you. He took us outside and we watched the fifth graders do the Battle of Fredericksburg, actually. And they had these little small wooden muskets with these plastic tubes in them. They blow flour out of them. And I was mesmerized by that. And then the next year, my brother was in fifth grade. He did Gettysburg. And in fifth grade, I did Shiloh of all battles. And it's kind of led to this career. So I, you know, kind of pursued this moving forward and went to Gettysburg College for a semester program and started interning with the National Park Service. And it's it's led to this. So I worked at a number of Civil War sites uh, for the National Park Service. So Gettysburg National Military Park, Richmond National Battlefield Parks, Stones River National Battlefield, uh, the Civil War Defenses of Washington, and now Camp Nelson National Monument. So it's kind of run, it's been a really interesting, fun journey. And I feel like I'm just getting started. Oh, that, that's great. And uh, uh, you really have a fascinating background there. You've been involved in a lot of uh, national parks and, and locations. And that's uh, really fascinating. And uh, this this might even be a topic for a future episode. But uh, uh, a personal favorite project of mine is I just love studying about the heavy artillery regiments. Oh, and the defenses of Washington. Uh, I think their history is just uh, badass, honestly. And and uh, um, somebody, I, I really don't. I really think they still don't get enough attention. They they could you use know, a lot more. Greatly unappreciated, and I, I think there's you know this is misconception that I get it. They spent a lot of time in D.C. They were permanent garrison troops, and that you know that they frolicked around Washington and the Capitol and had a good old time. And obviously, they had privileges that you know campaign troops did not have. But they were also meticulously trained on the use of heavy artillery as well. And so mm -hmm. when, you know, 30, almost 30,000 of them are transferred to the front in the spring of 1864, you know, they switch roles to infantry and they fight very heroically. But, you know, during Early's raid on Washington, they try to rush the heavies back to D.C. because there's no one else who's been trained to fire these really large guns. You know, we're talking 15-inch Rodman guns, 100-pound Parrot rifles, 30-pound Parrot rifles. And uh, there will be some of those units that will be engaged in the battle to defend the Capitol. So um, absolutely agree with that. And, you know, I think we'll we'll talk as well. There were heavy artillery units at Camp Nelson as well. Oh, so. nice. Well, awesome. Well, thank you for that. And uh, uh, moving along for now, um, uh, Will, uh, tell us a little bit about your background, Will. Well, it's interesting where the stories collide and where they connect and where they overlap. That's for sure. Uh, as a kid playing with friends, I grew up on the farm that my grandmother was born on. So plenty of woods around playing in the woods. And then in about fifth grade at the town library, pick up a book called Rifles for Wadey, a fictional story, which was a Caldecott winner uh, about a young lad who goes and with the Union Army helps break up a weapons running ring uh, running weapons to uh, Confederate General, uh, I believe Cherokee, Stan Wadey, but Native American, serving on the Confederate side. And that caught the eye and that twisted some of the story for me and several of my friends from just playing, uh, playing army in the woods to heading toward the Civil War. And then we ran into this place that we thought at that point in time was the best thing in the world, Winchester Sutler, and started rather than making our own things to acquire a few things and picked up friends 
in a town or two over and met the third Michigan infantry. And when I was 15 jumped into reenacting with them, uh, the third over the three decades has become the fifth Michigan. Both are, uh, their sister regiments in the red diamonds under Phil Carney. And so that's a story I stay pretty close to, uh, and have been actively involved in living history ever since probably maybe nine months off over the entire time really haven't taken a break have also done a uh, revolutionary war a little bit of world war ii and now, now active also in first century roman living history and then for the past eight years have combined my full-time work in motion picture world into uh working with uh, creating and now running civil war digital digest with over 200 episodes at this point Matter of fact, before we started recording this evening, I sent next week's draft copy off to the review team. So I had to do I had to do some work work before I get to do some play work this evening. But knew got to know Steve. Actually, Steve is one of the good things for me about social media because we hadn't met except online for a long time. And through our friend John Weaver, who's a noted author and historian of 19th century forts, we realized we were both fork nerds. And Steve <laughs> went to see uh, John and his wife, Carolyn, they dragged him up to my home stomping grounds in Detroit to historic Fort Wayne. And we got to meet the first time at a 19th century fortification. So when Steve said to me, hey, I'm going on temporary detail to Camp Nelson, I'm like, OK, you're going from 12 hours away from me to about five hours away from me. We're going to come down and see you. And if you've seen the Civil War Digital Digest episode, uh, my at the time, my dolly grip on Chicago Fire, who's now my lead camera operator, came down and we spent a weekend uh, being with Steve, both in history and in restaurants. Yes, that's what <laughs> I do very well. So, um, you know, it's it's a part of building a new national park site, obviously getting people to know about this not only Cam Nelson, but Civil War Kentucky, the Western Theater, which is often, as I think we all know, often overshadowed by the Western Theater. I mean, Eastern Theater, excuse me. And there's there's a lot happening out here. There's a lot of big names. I think, you know, we're going to talk about Ambrose Burnside and everyone mm -hmm. thinks about the Army of the Potomac, <laughs> uh, you know, Fredericksburg, obviously Antietam, uh, the crater. But it's like, yeah, he spent a, a full year, almost a full year in the Western Theater in Kentucky, in Ohio in Tennessee, right? And those are the things that we look forward to sharing with the public uh, next year. Awesome, awesome. Well, well thank you guys uh, for that. And and uh, one little touch on what you just said, uh, I feel like, and maybe we'll talk about this later regarding Burnside and all that, is almost as in the German army, World War II, how German officers would get banished to the Eastern Front. I feel like in the Army of Potomac world, in the Eastern Theater, if somebody didn't make it in the Army of Potomac, they sent him west. <laughs> oh, absolutely! Yeah, yeah. Seems like that yeah, was we, a. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I used to, you know, I talk to people about that. You know, fellow Civil War people and visitors. You know, I, I call it, you know, obviously military exile, and obviously <laughs> the worst being Irvin McDowell, who gets sent all the way to San Francisco. <laughs> That's as far west as you can go. I mean, obviously yeah. the Hawaiian Islands weren't a part of the U.S. yet. But where else is this guy going to go? So he was a regular wow. army brigadier general by that point. And they said, we can't get rid of this guy. He's not going to retire anytime soon. So we're going to send you out uh, to, you know, where you can't do any damage anymore. And it's California. Can you believe that? <laughs> Command the first major army of the U.S. military yeah. to literally California. So 
yeah you you but, had one job you had one job and you failed and now you're in california well I, you know i guess in a way he failed twice because the second manassas <laughs> right as well right but we will talk about this uh you know western theater is is burnside's really great redemption he actually does a really good job out here Wow. Well, that's great. Yeah, I look forward to that. And so uh, to wrap up our introduction, uh, Jason Brown uh, with Mess Number One, uh, give us a little bit about your background, Jason. Yeah, I thought about this for a while. I was trying to think how far back I could go. And, and the only thing that kept coming to mind is I think the furthest back I can recall that really grabbed me was watching the, uh, uh, this is going to sound weird maybe, but watching the North and South miniseries on TV. Not uh, weird at all. No. Okay. <laughs> I didn't know because uh, uh, it just, that's as far back as I could go. And uh, my mom watched it and I always joke with her that she probably watched it because of a uh, young Patrick Swayze right on there and less about the civil war, but um, it really grabbed my attention. You have this like epic saga uh, of these, these characters and, and the fact that it had a great cast and you know, it, there are parts of it that feel a bit like a soap opera. Right? I get that. Uh, but I really loved it. It really grabbed my attention, and I and I still love it today. So it, that was probably as far back as I can remember. And, and like most people my age, shows like Glory. You know, I remember the first time I saw Glory. Actually, uh, my parents had rented it back. You know, when you could rent VHSs. You know, <laughs> uh, but my my parents uh, rented a VHS for my sister and I, and it was Glory, and they were going to go out on a date or something like that. My sister and I watched this. And we're so blown away by the story and the cast and how it ends that when my parents come home, we actually lie to them and tell them we hadn't watched it yet. So we could watch it again before they had to return the <laughs> rental. Um, that That's how big that was. And of course, Ken Burns and all those things come along. And I don't recall at what point it really became a thing where I started thinking about the living history aspect of it, that you could physically do this stuff yourself. Um, but when we lived in Columbus, Ohio, I had the opportunity to start doing some living history stuff with the uh, Ohio, it was what the 91st Ohio Company B. Uh, they were up there in the Columbus area. I didn't get to do it long because life kind of set in and took me away from it for a while. Then here recently, I was able to get back into it. So, I mean, but like I said, that was probably about as far back as I can think and remember. And ever since then, the passion has always been there, even though, like I said, sometimes life sort of takes me away from it. I always have come back. Oh, yeah, for sure. And um, I really do love hearing everyone's journey into all this. And and most of the time it is very similar. Our journeys, we, we uh, most of us discover it at a young age like that, whether it's a, a novel or a movie or a, a first reenactment and uh it's all those little things that draw us in and, and still drawing people today. So, uh, I always think that's fascinating. But uh, guys, so our first, uh, or our next, I should say, next big question tonight is, is actually geared for Steve. And um, as our topic tonight is Camp Nelson National Monument, could you give us an overview of what exactly Camp Nelson is and its history and purpose during the war? Yes, absolutely. And that's the question that we answer every single day um, when visitors come into the visitor center, or visit the park. And, um, you know, as I think I mentioned, we're going to be commemorating the 160th of Camp Nelson next year and the, the events that uh, it was really supported or was a part of. 
it's interesting, right? I think all of us were a part of the 150th. Can we believe it's the 160th now? I mean, time flies by, right? But yeah, we're going to be talking about 1863 next year. So talking about Ambrose Burnside, obviously after Fredericksburg and the Mud March, he resigns in late January of 1863. I'm sorry, late January of 1863. And then he's actually transferred out West to command the newly reorganized Department of the Ohio and so massive uh, geographic swath of, of land like Indiana, Ohio, Michigan, um, uh, most of Kentucky, right? And he'll make his headquarters uh, in Louisville, um, Cincinnati at first, and then he'll make his way down to uh, this new military base that they established um, about 18 miles south of Lexington. Uh, they'll name it after General William Bull Nelson of Kentucky fame, who was murdered by uh, General Jefferson C. Davis in Louisville uh, before the Battle of Perryville. And it serves as a major army supply depot. I call it a Ford operating base. It's a recruitment and training center as well. And it's going to be kind of the base. It's, it's not going to be kind of, it is the base of operations from the Army of Ohio for them to launch their East Tennessee offensive, uh, truly the liberation of East Tennessee. East Tennessee is, as it was very pro-union. They had been under Confederate occupation since 1861. Um, and we're talking, you know, areas like Greenville, um, Tennessee, where, you know, future Vice President Andrew Johnson is from. He's also the military governor of Tennessee, right? Nashville becomes the first Confederate, in quotes, state capital to fall in February of 1862. And, you know, it's one of the first states to be reconstructed as well. But East Tennessee is a major priority for the Lincoln administration and the War Department. And they tried to do it in 1862. It did not work. So 1863 was the year. And not only does Burnside go out to uh, the Western Theater, he is joined by his corps, you know, that had been with him since, you know, the amphibious operations along the Carolina coast in early 1862. Then obviously throughout 1860, the rest of the year as well with the Maryland campaign. It's the Ninth Corps. Two divisions of the Ninth Corps get transferred out with him, and they will be serving as the veteran troops within this department of the Ohio. And then he's going to organize another corps, uh, officially the 23rd Corps, which will be comprised of all troops, especially in Kentucky, not assigned to the Ninth Corps. So the Army of the Ohio, of the Ohio consists of the Ninth and 23rd Corps, and it's going to be up to them to really launch this offensive from Camp Nelson, which becomes this sprawling military infrastructure at its height during the Civil War. It's over 4,000 acres, consists of over 300 wooden structures, warehouses, workshops, corrals, literally uh, a water station that pumps up water from the Kentucky River up 400 feet over the Palisades to a Reservoir that held 500,000 gallons of water. I mean, it's absolutely incredible what they did there in a very short amount of time. Uh, but there's also another aspect of Camp Nelson. It be becomes a refugee camp and a recruitment center for initially in 1863 for white civilians, including people from East Tennessee. There are seven white regiments organized for the U.S. military at Camp Nelson, including some East Tennessee troops and then some Kentucky troops as well. And they'll be joined there by their families um, from East Tennessee, but also 
uh, Kentuckians from Eastern Kentucky who are kind of fleeing war. And so this is kind of the first iteration of Camp Nelson. Uh, the Army of the High will launch the Knoxville campaign from Camp Nelson. Burnside will be present there um, in, on August 8, 16th, 1863. And they'll march uh, down the road south towards Tennessee. They'll bypass and flank the Cumberland Gap. And they'll occupy Knoxville in early September of 1863. And it's a, as I said, it's Burnside's great redemption. And as you can imagine, the inhabitants of East Tennessee were overjoyed by their liberation. And, you know, the, the, the U.S. Army will maintain control of, of that area for the remainder of the war. And I think a lot of people think of Knoxville when they think about, you know, Burnside against Longstreet. And that's later in the year. But this is the first phase um, of uh, the Knoxville campaign. And then I'll conclude, you know, the national significance of Camp Nelson is really what happens in 1863. Obviously, Knoxville is very, very important, uh, the supply and logistics center. Um, but we're in Kentucky, right? You know, a border state, a slave state that remains in the United States. It's a very tenuous relationship with Kentuckians and the federal government. Um, they stayed in the Union um, on the predication that slavery would be protected. And that starts to get chipped away at and in 1864, the Army starts recruiting African-American men for military service um, at several uh, recruiting centers uh, across the state of Kentucky, the largest being Camp Nelson, where eight full regiments of United States colored troops are organized, uh, four infantry, two cavalry, and two heavy artillery, over 10,000 men. It's one of the largest recruitment centers for African-American soldiers in the entire country. And... Again, there's the civilian aspect. Uh, there, it becomes a refugee center for thousands of enslaved people, including family members of USCT. Uh, the, the big difference, obviously, is they have no status, right? They're not considered uh, citizens. They're basically fleeing enslavement. And there's going to be some pretty dark episodes that occur here in 1864. So, uh, and this, by the way, this site goes into 1866. It's a reconstruction site as wow. well. So, um, and, you know, before I turn it back over to, uh, to you, Jason, uh, this site um, was abandoned in 1866. It's hard to believe all the construction uh, structures were taken down. So this massive 4,000 acre site uh, was gone. Um, but there was something established in 1865 called the, the Home for Colored Refugees, which uh, uh, featured a school, hospital, mess and kitchen and cottages and sh and tent, uh, tents and shacks for all these uh, refugees. And so there is a descendant community that still lives there today. It's obviously dissipated over the past 160 years, but there are still people there uh, that are directly um, descendant from uh, refugees and USCT soldiers. Uh, but this site became uh, a county site called Camp Nelson Heritage Park um, managed by Jessamine County, Kentucky in 1998. And that went on for about 20 years. And it became, uh, it was declared as Camp Nelson National Monument, the 418th unit of the National Park Service in late October of 2018. And we've only had permanent MPS staff uh, on the grounds for about a year now. So we're, we're a brand new national park site and it's, it's really exciting to be there. No, uh, that really is exciting, and uh, and part of the intrigue and um, in talking to you guys about this tonight because uh, 
it, it honestly was was new to me, <laughs> and uh, and so uh, I'm really excited to hear about all this. And I've never been myself. I can't wait to to make my first visit up there too. And um, but touching on uh, something you just uh, uh, talked about was the regiment or the regiment there, and or garrison there. So you, you know you're talking about the Ninth Corps regiments, Burnside, and you're also talking about brand new uh, USCT regiments. So there's a lot of troops stationed there among the refugees. Um, do you have any anecdotes of any of those particular regiments or soldiers or, or USCT stationed there? Yeah, absolutely. And so, as I said, there was four infantry units. Uh, two of them saw a lot of service. The 114th and 116th were actually transferred east and served with the Army of the James and uh, were, you know, involved in the campaigns around Richmond and Petersburg. Uh, one of them participated in the Appomattox campaign and was present at the at least surrendered in April of oh, 1865. Wow. Can you imagine that a year before these men were enslaved and a year later, actually one of the regiments was reviewed by uh, President Lincoln at Petersburg and then they'll be involved in the Appomattox campaign. They, they experienced that all in one year. It's hard wow. to imagine what these men felt and experienced and saw. And later, those two units were sent out west, even further west, and served along the Texas-Mexico border until 1867. So oh, wow. long after the Civil War. And when they were mustered out, there were dozens of these men that actually enlisted in the regular army. By this point, there were regular army uh, black segregated units. We now know those men as Buffalo soldiers, right? So there's a legacy of military service here, and it, it's really incredible. Uh, the 5th and 6th Colored Cab took um, part in the, the Saltville campaign, which included some massacres. Uh, one massacre where uh, African-American soldiers wounded were left on the battlefield or taken to a local hospital and were murdered by uh, Confederate guerrillas, right? So we hear about these war atrocities as well. And I know uh, Jason will be talking about this, as will Will. Uh, you know, there were Kentucky units, East Tennessee units. This was really, really interesting, right? I mean, they literally fled con Confederate occupation and then enlisted in the Army at Camp Nelson. Um, a lot of them are doing garrison work and things like that. Um, but there will be uh, some units that will uh, be a part of uh, Sherman's uh, with the Army of the Ohio in 1864 under uh, under Schofield. They'll be a part of you know the Atlanta campaign, um, which is pretty incredible as well, right? And so, you know, we may be kind of a, a you know a static military base, but you know this is the, the engine, you know, the cog that really lights the engine, gets the engine going, right? So, um, this is the base that recruits men, uh, trains them supplies them and sends them out into the field and so you know we touch campaigns and sites all over the country and stories that endure for several years it's it's really really compelling and steve i mean with steven saying he's such a big heavy artillery fan um i don't have the name top of my head maybe you do one of the accounts, one of the men who was in the 12th United States Colored Troop Heavy Artillery, actually later in life worked as a facilities, uh, a janitor of a forum at a college in Ohio and wrote his memoirs down. Do you have his Peter name Br top of your head? Peter Bruner. Peter Bruner. So we actually have 
a veteran's account talking about enlisting in one of the regiments in 1864 at Camp Nelson and then his trials and struggles. He wrote about sleeping in a shelter tent and it's snowing and snowing in the side of it. Talked about standing guard over stores. This is after they left Camp Nelson. But some of the um, stories that we pick up, there is actually some first person primary documentation here. That is incredible. And I, I know there's a lot out there that I need to read into about all of this because there's so many. Uh, that, that's what gets me about all this is there's so much in, involved here. It's not just some random camp. I mean, but there's like there's something for everybody. It sounds like at Camp Nelson as far yeah, as it, history. History and yeah, there, there really is. There's so many different aspects of this conflict, right? Civilian, military. Uh, emancip- we talk about a lot about the complexities of emancipation, of course, uh, logistics and supply. Um, and this is, you know, the and just the setting, Kentucky, which overwhelmingly supports the Union in regards mm-hmm. to numbers, right? Well over 100,000 men served in the U.S. military compared to about... 30,000 in the Confederacy. But once the federal government starts enforcing enlistment, which leads to emancipation for African-American men, over 24,000 in the state, by the way, there is a dramatic turn against the Lincoln administration and the federal government. And it it happens almost immediately. 63, 64, there is a major turn. I, I think people forget sometimes Kentucky was one of the few states that voted for George McClellan in the 1864 election, right? That's how mm-hmm. dramatic this turn was. There was a lot of white army officers from Kentucky that resigned after the Emancipation Proclamation was issued in January of 63, even though it didn't impact uh, directly the state, you know, it impacted the, the, the other slave states, right? And so they were very upset about that. And um, obviously, we talk a lot about the memory and legacy of the Civil War here, um, and it's 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 very contested, right? And it happens really during the Civil War, um, and that's something. And these are the conversations that we want to engage the public with today. And talking about the uh, the public interaction here uh, too, but uh, um, you know, uh, there's a lot of um, I'm sure I'm sure you get a lot of people too that might come and. And, you know, people are used to battlefield parks or national battlefield parks. And if you could talk a little bit about, you know, um, why Kim Nelson is referred to as a national monument. And you get many visitors who ask, like, was there a battle here? Was there fighting here? Is there any kind of public misconceptions that, that you get? Yeah, that's a great question. And we actually, it's something that we talk about almost every single day, uh, Stephen. It's actually a lot, a lot of it for us is branding, right? And I, it, for a number of reasons, and I, I saw, you know, I saw Jason the other day at, at the Perryville, the 160 Battle of uh, Perryville, right? Uh, which is about 30 minutes away or so from, um, from Camp Nelson. And it's, you know, the largest battle that took place in the state during the war. It's a very important, dramatic action. And it's the last major invasion of the state by Confederate forces during the war. And it's, you know, there was a lot of people there. And I'm sure Jason can talk about that. Um, we, we previously, uh, well, a few weeks uh, previous at the end of August was the 160th Battle of Richmond, where General Bull Nelson, the namesake of Camp Nelson, was at. And so those are the two major actions that people think about when they think of Kentucky during the Civil War. And so, yeah, we have people that come in. And I'll ask us all the time because they see we talk about 
fortifications that were constructed here by enslaved people that were actually impressed by the army. Um, and you see um, cannons uh, in front of one of the structures here. You go into the visitor center and you see, wow, this is a, a civil war site. So naturally you ask is, you know, was there a battle here? And we tell them, no, this was a, a massive supply, a supply and recruitment center. And it was also a refugee camp as well. And, um, you know, so actually locally people know about Camp Nelson, uh, but they assume or they believe that we're the National Cemetery, which is located directly south of us. Um, and even a few miles down right off the Kentucky River, there's like a Camp Nelson campground. Right. So people call us asking for camping, you know, reservations and things like that. And the interesting thing about the National Cemetery is uh, it's intimately connected with the actual military base, right? Um, there was, a, a, there was a, a cemetery there during the Civil War. They called it Cemetery Number Two. And it was the final resting place for soldiers and civilians who worked and lived at Camp Nelson. I think a lot of uh, you know, your viewers and listeners know that you know, a lot of the national cemeteries after the Civil War expanded or were established, uh, you know, and this is the same thing that happened here. So the, the war department, and this was assigned to the quartermaster department, you know, they were um, instructed to remove U.S. soldiers from battlefields and small cemeteries across the country and reinter them at national cemeteries. And so we've got a lot of U.S. soldiers from the Battle of Richmond and Perryville and, you know, garrison troops all the way up in Covington near Cincinnati, um, all buried at now, um, at this site. And so in 1867 is when this officially becomes Camp Nelson National Monument. Uh, the site, um, as I said, south of us, there's over 2,200 U.S. soldiers from the Civil War buried there. Listen to this, gents. 837 U.S. colored troops are buried in that cemetery. Wow. That's got to be one of the it's insane. It, it's one of, it's got to be one of the largest concentrations in the entire country, right? It's a powerful cemetery to be at as well. I can say that. Yeah, and so there's this really great, obviously historic section, right? And and it, the thing is, the cemetery is expanding as well, and it's still open for burials. So mm -hmm. one of the things we get, and I I really do enjoy these conversations with the public, is they call us and say, "Hey, I got a spouse or a family member, you know, my father." Um, that, you know, is looking to make plans for, you know, to be interred at the cemetery. And we just tell them, you know, we're the national park side, but here's the number for the cemetery. So um, obviously you can imagine for people in the community, it means a lot to them. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. That said, we want to work with that. You know, we want, we did like a history at sunset program to talk about the historic section of the cemetery. And so, you know, um, I think in general, people don't know too much about Civil War Kentucky, but if they do, they think of, you know, Lincoln was born here, Jefferson Davis was born here. You'll think about Perryville and Richmond. Uh, you'll hear about John Hunt Morgan, right, who's buried in Lexington. Um, but, you know, beneath these layers, there is so much super complex history here. And um, so in that same cemetery, by the way, you've got Mary Todd Lincoln's family. Her parents are buried there. You've wow. got... Uh, John C. Breckinridge, right, the former vice president of the United States who became a Confederate general. Uh, you have, as I mentioned, John Hunt Morgan. Pretty cool, right? You also have Gordon Granger, you yep. know, the, the, the general that issued general orders um, in Galveston, Texas, which we now know as Juneteenth Day, right? Mm -hmm. That all occur, and all these people are connected to this state. It's so, uh, it's really incredible, right? And so, 
uh, we want to talk about this like kind of civil war corridor right that um heritage area because you've got all these different sites and then not I must, i'd be remiss if i didn't mention real quickly when this was declared as a national a unit of the national park service so i want to give a little backdrop there was legislation that was presented or you know introduced into congress about this becoming i think the idea was it for it to become camp nelson national historic site right which would have to be approved by both houses of congress and then there was yeah, there was movement at uh, the Mill Springs uh, battlefield site in Nancy, Kentucky, about an hour and a half south of Camp Nelson. And so in, in 2018, late 2018, uh, the, this was through Secretary Zinke and President Trump. They, he basically took both these sites and used his uh, authority uh, within the Antiquities Act to declare both sites as a national monument meaning you don't have to get uh, you don't have to get congressional approval for that. Right. And that's why we're called Camp Nelson National Monument. Right. And Mill Springs is actually called it's kind of, you know, it's, it's kind of an interesting name. Uh, Mill Springs Battlefield National Monument. Right. Because that's how it got its legislation. So, um, yeah, you know, we're, we're and I think, you know, moving forward, uh, especially with the 160 events next year. And then we're, we're going to do, you know, obviously, 160, 1864, which is a huge year at Camp Nelson. Mm. Uh, we want, you know, it, it, we're going to build this momentum. And um, we want, I think, increasingly, we'll get higher visitation. We'll get more people interested, more people to know about uh, this place. And uh, we're very excited to have, you know, really dedicated thought for people like you involved. Well, thank you, uh, Stephen. I, I'm really excited to uh, hear about all of this. And um, one more uh, follow-up really quick to uh, going back to the National Cemetery um, and the amount of soldiers buried there. Um, how many are unknown versus uh, named soldiers that are buried there? Oh, wow. That's a really great question. Um, uh, I, I don't recall, to be honest. I, I'd have to look that up. I do know there's 2,200 U.S. soldiers from the Civil War, 837 USCT. Uh, there's two Confederate soldiers buried there. Um, there's um, you'll, you'll see a good amount of unknowns when you walk through there. Uh, but one of the most compelling parts that I think, Stephen, it, because as I, there was a hospital located there when it was Camp Nelson, the military base. So there was a lot of men that and civilians that died there. There are civilian employees buried at the cemetery and their headstones say like teamster employee. One says uh, employee colored as well. Right. Wow. That's absolutely incredible. And, you know, that, that right there, it's really a kind of a microcosm about the complexities of Kentucky during the Civil War and then obviously Camp Nelson as well. Oh, well, thank you. And I, I really look forward to, um, I, I love visiting, taking time at every national cemetery that I can in my own uh, journeys. And uh, again, uh, I might actually have an opportunity to visit in the near future. Uh, I'm a, a side note, big Cincinnati Bearcats fan, and I'm going up to a game in November. And I'm already thinking on the way up or on the way back, um, I'm going to try to swing by and, and check it out, get a little overview of it. So I look forward to that look forward to having you can't wait awesome well guys um i want to shift uh now to uh, uh the living history aspect of this and uh for will and jason how you both uh got involved in this and what drew your interest to camp nelson and maybe some of the research and stuff that kind of helped you uh get that interest but uh starting with you will and i know you touched on this 
a lot earlier uh, being Fort nerds with uh, Steve, but uh, talk a little bit about your, your initial ideas and uh, uh, goal about doing a living history here at the park. Well, the initial ideas came talking with Steve shortly after 4th of July, wanting to do something here. And then, you know, and that's been for a while because, of course, well, before Steve was even full time there, I got to interview him for the digest and be on site and look around and go, there's a lot that's here that's not seen. And <clears throat> beyond enjoying living history for ourselves, when we do things in the public setting, what do we do but help? people have a better way to connect to the history, have a better way to grasp it or to understand it. So we were talking and Steve and I were talking, he's like, well, next year's the 160th. I've got roads that these men marched on. I'd love to see a hundred men marching down these roads. Okay, there's the start in the brainstorm. Mm -hmm. Start talking with the other fellas at THE and we had just done Garfield's Ascent uh, teamed up with mess number one. So immediately got talking with Joshua, James and Jason from their team and they brought the rest of their team in and we're all spitballing on a large Facebook messenger chat. And Joshua says, let's do 21st Massachusetts. And I said, okay, I'm throwing that out right away. This is a regional thing. We're going to have a lot of fellows from the, from the West civil war parlance coming. Let's find something more home team. And the more we look, look for Illinois, look for Ohio. There's really no Michigan in that neck of the woods minus second Michigan with the ninth Corps, And just looking, looking and Joshua keeps saying, Hey, 21st, 21st, 21st. <laughs> and he said they, before going to Nelson did guard duty near within a mile of my house and the neighborhood loved them. Everybody started mistrustful, but by the end, the town was petitioning the government, Hey, go to the rest of the war, leave those guys here to take care of us. <laughs> and so you start to see some complex stories there and we start, okay, we start to take a look at these guys a little bit. They are formed. They go to New Bern. They have the whole travel with Burnside in the spring of 62. Jason, I'm going to ellipse over Antietam because I want you to tell that story because of your recent connection there. Um, and then they get sent west and they're doing where part of the rest of the Ninth Corps gets sent to Vicksburg. They're left on these little garrison duties. And then they get sent to this new place called Camp Nelson. Okay, I'm still a little, I've got the regimental history in front of me. I've got from Ashby to Andersonville, the Civil War diary and reminiscences of uh, Private George Hitchcock from Company A. Uh, the books are literally sitting in front of me with tons of post-it notes in it. <laughs> and then we find out that the event is the 12th and 13th of August next year. And lo and behold, the 21st Massachusetts marches into Camp Nelson on a road that we'll, we will be on. 160 years to the day earlier. Okay, you now have Will paying very close attention to the 21st Massachusetts. <laughs> oh, that's great. And that's the stuff that I love as a living historian. You know, uh, I'm just so thankful for those opportunities where we can recreate things and, and sleep on the same ground and march on the very same ground that these things well, have. And I'll give a, give a shout out to Steve and his team because they're bending over backward. There's some stuff we won't be able to say yet this evening, partially so we don't give everything away, partially because we're still working out details to make sure that we on the living history side and Steve and his folks on the National Park Service side are in lockstep. So everything comes off great for you guys. But I went to Steve right away and camping on a, a national park site comes with 
real rules on their part so that they, as the caretakers of the national property for us, can take care of the place. Steve, I want to camp one place on Friday night so that we can march into Camp Nelson on Saturday down that road you want us to march down, but I don't want the fellows to march out of camp and back into camp. Okay, I got just a field, and the next day a picture of a, a picture of a lovely scenic field shows up, but it's just a field. Steve, is this where you're thinking of Friday night's camp is my text? Yep, that's it. So we've got support to not only build something that allows the public to grasp onto what was part of Kentucky history, but also allows us and our fellow participants to grasp that in our own way. Yeah, and I, if you don't mind me interjecting, Will, I think that was really well said. And I think that's it's really important from our perspective in the Park Service and just me as, you know, I consider myself a part with all you guys and all living history people is we want this to be immersive and we want to, it, not only just the event, but we want to have this collaborative experience with, all, with everyone, right? All the partners that are involved, obviously the park is hosting the event, but, you know, I've really leaned on Will and Jason and their expertise with living history to, you know, talk out the details and kind of flesh out a plan that uh, works for everyone, right? Works for uh, the, the participants, the park, of course, and all the visitors that will be coming out to this event. And I mean, we started talking about this, I think, you know, in July, as he was saying, the event was 13 months away. But, you know, we wanted to be very deliberate and thoughtful in our approach with this. And that's really exciting, right? And so, yeah, and I know we're all busy. Heck, we're recording this pretty late tonight, but we're making it happen, right? And so, you know, Will and I and Jason, we're all in correspondence, you know, almost weekly kind of sharing ideas, questions, concerns, and things like that. And we're already building a vision of what this looks like. And it's uh, it's incredible. And I'll mention one thing about the 21st Massachusetts. And that was a new share for me. You know, you know, Jason was kind of been posting about this. And and I forgot that, you know, one of the officers is Theron Hall and he becomes the he, he becomes the chief quartermaster at Camp Nelson for the remainder of the Civil War. He's a big deal here. Right. Um, and, and he's going to say he's somebody we will be portraying because right. of that. Mm -hmm. con some of these conversations. Right. And he's got a legacy there, too. Right. So he it, it, he he. Um, when African-American refugees are expelled in November of 64 and over 400 of them are expelled, we have this special commemoration coming up on October 22nd to honor uh, all 400 that were expelled. At least 100 of them died. Um, it was Theron Hall that wrote Washington that you need to do something about this. Right. And he'll um, also be a part of the home for colored refugees that was established at Camp Nelson in 1865. And then after the war, he becomes a partner for the new E.J. Curley uh, distillery that's distilling bourbon off the Kentucky River, which employs former refugees and soldiers. Right. So it's so really incredible to kind of see where people's lives uh, take them as they kind of uh, meander through war and, and peace and things like that. So I just wanted to interject and, and share how, how we want this collaborative experience to work. Um, as we work together uh, and to organize this. And then obviously, you know, this is all about the, the, the visual and the um, audio experience, um, uh, inspirational uh, experience for the visitors and, and the par participants alike. So, you know, and oh, talking, to, talking to Steve and I just started throwing stuff at him. We got on the phone a couple of weeks ago so we could get really serious about things. We knew the infantry, the, inf 
Civil War reenacting, the infantry is relatively speaking the easy part. I know we can talk about how big or how little or how we portray it, but let's face it, guys, at the end of the day, infantry is the is just the okay, that's what you expect. Great. Um, because of National Park Service availability for rangers at this point uh, for black powder, we looked at the original 21st as about 200 men. Uh, we can't portray that full scale to make sure Steve can be good for staffing. We said we're at about 100. So rather than trying to do micro companies and do something silly, these companies are each about 20 men. We're going to raise five 20 man companies and portray one wing of the 21st, you know, and that just works best. And I threw something at Steve and I threw something at the guys. And now that we're talking to uh, companies, we have three, three of the five company organ companies already organizing. And I've been telling all their, all their fellows who organize companies, not every company has a company commander picked yet. They have somebody who's organizing and going to be the backbone and steering it said, look, as you build this, you need muskets, you need one or maybe two officers, preferably one. You also need two company cooks because on the living history side, one of the things I want to see is we're still working on the ration plan, but Friday evening will be one thing. My goal when we get in on Saturday is that once camp is established, rations will be drawn from the quartermaster, more to be said on that later. Um, and then issued from the regimental quartermaster out to the companies, but not all the way down to the men like we so often see in living history because that's battle, a campaign scenario that's perfect. Has to see something different in the place where they did something different and that is in a more permanent garrison situation. I said, hey, make sure you have two men detailed to cook and mess kettles for each company because I don't want fellas cooking over the campfires. We can only have a few because again, to care for the National Park Service, we have to be careful how we do fires. And these are going to be cooked for by company cooks. That will be really fascinating, as you said, because uh, this is an opportunity, like you said, most of the time we're on campaign and you don't have many uh, garrison opportunities like that. So uh, I'm fascinated to see how that works. And and another thing that I think we all see in, in living history events, it's Sometimes it's better anyway to have a smaller group but a living history like this. So you have people fighting to get in versus uh, too high of expectations, not getting enough people in. Yeah. Steve said, hey, civilian refugees. He said, yes, we're working with the Aramath Society. We said, hey, there was a camp, there was a photographer at the camp throughout the war. Their uh, University of Kentucky is the repository of some wonderful wet plate images from this site, including one of my favorite uh, photos uh, of just personal portrait. And that's because uh, these three or four friends, I can't remember how many, their backdrop isn't one of those painted backdrops, isn't just out into the field, isn't a white backdrop. Their backdrop is two U.S. issue blankets, one hung upside down and one, one hung right side up because the U.S.'s are flipped up and down and they've got two issue blankets as their backdrop. So we're working on getting it. We're working on getting a uh, wet plate photographer there. We've got two or three people we're speaking with. So and there's some other stuff, like I said, still up and coming that we'll talk about soon down the road because of making sure we do things in lockstep with Steve and the requirements that they have. But our goal is not just to show the infantry, but to the largest example, Colonel Hall, who's the quartermaster. Let's see the largest slice of Camp Nelson 
in August 1863 that we can see. Wow, that that will be fascinating, and I, and I look forward to that. And uh, uh, Jason, um, if you will um, talk a little bit about uh, a little more on on what drew your interest in there. Obviously, uh, you guys have all talked together before, but uh, um, I also want to give you a chance to talk about a recent event that you were part of, and Steve and others. Uh, recreating the 21st Massachusetts on another battlefield. But uh, yeah. if you'd like to take that away. Sure. Um, yeah, from a mess one, number one point of view, and, and I got to say, the, sort of the concepts and ideas Will's already presented is, is absolutely what we were on board with as far as it's going to be the 160th anniversary when the 21st comes in there. But I think the thing that drew me uh, to doing this is number one, we had such a great experience with Tuber when we did Garfield's Ascent. We worked well together. We were uh, a unified team, and and that really meant a lot to us. And so we, when when the idea, even before Garfield's Ascent happened, to do another event, we were all in. But I think one of the things that drew me in is the very thing that you and I, Stephen, have just experienced. We've listened to to Stephen Will passionately talk about what they want this event to be and so when i listen to will and steve talk like that i'm all in you know i'm, I'm ready to go uh, i can't help but to not want mess number one to be a part of this because you you feel that passion they have and another reason why i'm in for this as well um is that back when like josh james and i who are kentuckians started thinking about mess number one and what we wanted one of the things we wanted to see happen is we wanted to see authentic campaigner events come to Kentucky. And so when Will has this idea to do Camp Nelson, I mean, that fits right along with some of our goals because we just finished doing Garfield's Ascent here in Kentucky. Camp Nelson's coming up. Uh, the Independent Rifles are going to do an event at Perryville next, re next year called Wrestling of Demons. And so that was a part of the, the hook, too. Uh, when Will says, let's do it, you know, in Kentucky, I couldn't help but to be excited because that was kind of one of mess, mess number one's goals was to bring, you know, authentic campaigner events to Kentucky. Um, I can't speak to what's been done in Kentucky in the past on that level, but that at least excited us and was something that, that we definitely wanted to be a part of and see that take place. Um, as far as the 21st, I really like the connections and uh, Will connected on it a little bit. The connections that the 21st did have to Mount Sterling, the relationship they had. You know, I, I personally found it very exciting to see that a regiment whose ideologies were very likely extremely different from those Kentuckians in Mount Sterling, that they had such a profound respect for each other. And like Will said, so much so that when the 21st is twice being told, hey, you're headed out to protect other areas to go to Lexington, that the townspeople unanimously petition them to stay. And they do actually stay until eventually they have to go. And so that's something that I found that was very nice to read about and, and made a connection there to the 21st sort of as a Kentuckian. As far as their history, you know, they have such a, a wonderful history back east as far as their engagement, their involvement, where they're at at various times. Burnside Bridge is, is obviously one of the biggest ones they were as far as crossing the bridge. Anyone that's been to Antietam and been across the Burnside Bridge has seen the marker there that um, is for them as far as them distinguishing themselves. And like you were saying, a couple weeks ago, 
with the Liberty Rifles, we had the opportunity to be a part of filming there at Antietam uh, for the National Park Service. We were working on the film that they were going to put together that would be shown in the visitor center, the new visitor center that they're working on there uh, when guests come to visit there. So we did the filming. Part of the filming was to the opportunity to charge across the Burnside Bridge there. Now, we portrayed the fist, the 251st, which is the Pennsylvania and the New York. But uh, in my heart, when we went across the bridge, uh, I was doing the 21st Massachusetts, knowing <laughs> that they were going across uh, at that same time. And it was really an emotional moment. You know, my, I teared up and everything because it was such a big moment to be able to say, OK, you're doing this what they did 160 years ago next year, you'll do another, another 160 uh, year anniversary for them. So that, that was really a big moment as far as being able to portray them again and just sort of in sort of deep dive uh, from a living history point of view, more and more into the 21st. Uh, I've really enjoyed studying about them. It's, it's really been exciting. That's really fascinating. And uh, think of how lucky fortunate that we are as living historians that in just one year or one summer, you're charging for Burnside's Bridge. You're charging on Edgefield as the first Texas. You're charging a Plum Run as the first Minnesota at Gettysburg. You couldn't have had a better summer anytime. Right. right. And that's, and really, that's one of the things that also um, that drew me to the idea of doing Camp Nelson in a national park uh, event is and i can't remember if will mentions the idea before we go to first minnesota but i look and i see that liberty rifles has a great relationship at gettysburg they have a great relationship with antietam and and the american battlefield trust and you can see it's going to be a success and then we obviously saw it was a success so part of wanting to work with with camp nelson as well is seeing that that is successful the living history community has that partnership why wouldn't we want to do that and be a part of that yeah and i think you're spot on with that jason and i you know i was a assistant gettysburg national military park with like the 155th anniversary when uh i marched um and i was in park service uniform but they did the 147th new york right and they marched three miles mm -hmm. from the base of little round top you know into the into mcpherson's ridge and um you know into the sunken i mean the railroad cut area and for it was an incredible visual right you had a hundred and about right. 20 guys and obviously uh, i was there this past year to, to witness the first minnesota go into action as well right mm -hmm. and my biggest takeaway with this you know i'm, I'm trying to be observant right and i want to hear what visitors mm -hmm. are saying and you know i'm kind of i'm being like an undercover reporter you know i'm like so what do you guys think of that and everyone just kept on talking about the visual right you had mm -hmm. 200 and 200 and something guys go into action and only mm -hmm. like 60 guys came back right and people are like I, mm -hmm. I remember this uh, this group saying I cannot believe all those guys came in went in and only that many came back right yeah and we see them marching these formations and and, and cross across the charge across the field and things like that in mm -hmm. the ravine uh we, we want to capture that right um yeah a very immersive and I, I think that's a really I think that's a really effective way to do living history and mm -hmm. it's a little bit different than just, and I get it, demonstrations and things like that. We do that in the park right. service as well. But I, I, you know, we want to take it to the next level. And, right. you know, I think as Jason was saying, you know, we've had these really high quality groups um, 
come in and do these events and work with us to engage the, the public on these big anniversary events. And they've been really successful. Yeah, sort of going on what Steve said, uh, and um, Stephen, you were at both Distant Thunder and First Minnesota. You see a real change in people's face and look when they, when they look at it. And you don't have to be a historian for them to know and look and say, this is different. This is appealing because they can tell the difference between an impassioned living historian that is doing it right, as opposed to the um, the hobby person that is doing it just as a pastime for themselves. I know, you know, when we did the 160th Perryville this last weekend, you know, there's a lot of compliments about our authentic civilian camp because people could tell there was a difference between what we were doing as unionist refugees uh, and what we were set up to do as opposed to what they had maybe seen in the past or other areas. And so people see that and it draws them in immediately. It certainly did at Miss, uh, First Minnesota and Distant Thunder. They were captivated. Well said. Remember when I saw you just walking through Perryville and walking through the camps? Mm -hmm. I'm like, y'all look great, right? Yeah. And, right. And, and just from the visual perspective, I can imagine how many people were engaging. I know the Liberty Rifles, when they were portraying the first Minnesota, they were posted right next to Meade's headquarters, right? That's mm -hmm. a very busy intersection right by the National Cemetery, right? right? Thousands right. of people came through uh, their encampment through the day, and that's exactly what we want. We want it to be right. engaging and immersive, right? And so, um, you know, it, 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 for me, it's kind of been being a part of this from um, kind of the uh, the park service experience and, and seeing this, um, seeing um, how much time and dedication is put into this. And then um, as I was sharing, just engaging with Will and Jason over the past couple months or so, hearing their ideas and how they organize and recruit and plan these um, major concepts. Um, it's really exciting, right? And, and it's right. something that I'm certainly not an expert on. And uh, that's why you collaborate with other people, right? Because you, you, everyone adds kind of their talent and their skill and experience to it, and you build something really, really special. Right. And we're just and we're just the people who happen to be free to podcast recording here because Tubor is a team of five. The mess number one organizers, not including the entire mess, we regularly have four or five fellows from over there. Some of the other things we have cooking for this Aramath Society has two or three main organizers, plus some of the other stuff we're working on. There's another two or three people on the living history side just at the, okay, let's get this figured out and crack this nut in a very cool way. We're at 15 people right there. What's interesting about that connection, too, to the Perryville authentic civilian camp we had was the um, fact that the Aramanth um, Society, that group, they're the same group that's going to work with us at Camp Nelson. So we know quality is coming because we got mm -hmm. so much outpouring of support. Um, and it wasn't just that group. There are other groups there working, uh, but it definitely shows that we're going to have a really good group on that end as well, as far as a partnership. Wow. Well, this is, uh, again, um, the hype is building just us talking about this tonight. And, um, and I know the listeners are, are going to be really enthused after uh, hearing all this as well. But as we uh, get closer to the end here, um, all of you have already touched on um, 
uh, research, uh, whether it's memoirs and, and, and books and whatnot. But, but for people, you know, there's a whole year uh, or less than a year now, but there's a whole year leading up to uh, the living history next year. What is some recommended reading that uh, you would all recommend further sources, biographies, regimental histories that you could recommend people read uh, to learn more about the park? Um, Steve, if you'd like to lead off on that. Yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here with you, gents, and look forward to engaging with y'all moving forward and then, you know, and in, in, in connecting with uh, your um, listeners as well and getting people out to Camp Nelson. And I, I, I guess the first thing I'll share is the dates that we've already got set, um, August 12th and 13th, uh, 2023, which is a, a Friday and a Saturday. The big event with the 21st, uh, with the 21st Massachusetts will be on that Saturday. I mean, Obviously, we're still going to spend the next, you know, eight months fleshing out all the details and uh, the schedule and things like that, the calendar. But um, just put that on your calendar and come out to uh, Kentucky and you can see a lot of different things here. I, You know, you might want to uh, land in Lexington or drive into Lexington and go see the Mary Todd Lincoln House and go to uh, Lexington Cemetery, uh, the Lexington Cemetery. And then, you know, go, go down to Camp Nelson, of course, and then Richmond and Perryville. There's so much for you to see here. So. You know, pretty simple. I, I tell people, first of all, you know, go check out our, our, our Facebook page. Just look up Camp Nelson National Monument. Look for the MPS Arrowhead. Um, and we're posting uh, there all the time, uh, including uh, updates about what's going on at the park. We're doing, you know, renovation of the visitor center of some of the historic structures, um, the museum. All these different things are going on at the park. Uh, we have an Instagram page as well. Just look up Camp Nelson National Monument. Um, and we have a great website as well. Just, just look up Camp Nelson uh, National Monument. Uh, we have a great history and culture section that talks about everything, uh, places, people, events that took place here. Um, literally every single aspect of this really complex site is covered there. And it's, it's been a lot of fun for us to, to update that. Um, so for books, there, there's two major works I think people should focus on in regards to Camp Nelson and is... Uh, there's one called Camp Nelson, Kentucky by Richard Sears. And it's it's kind of, it's the research book that we all use uh, as park staff. Um, the first 50 or so pages kind of builds up to what Camp Nelson is and how it was established and all that stuff. And a lot of the rest of the book is all primary source material uh, from the official records of War of the Rebellion, uh, different excerpts, letters and things like that. It's incredible as a resource data book. And then the second one that we use quite a bit as well is Embattled Freedom. Uh, it's a journey through uh, the Civil War slave refugee camps. It's written by Dr. Amy Taylor, who's a professor at the University of Kentucky. She's a great friend of the park. And there's an entire chapter on Camp Nelson. It's absolutely incredible. It won a lot of awards when it was published a few years ago. And so th those are the two I look at. If you're more interested in other kind of more focused reads, just let me know or send me an email or something and I'll, I'll provide more. Um, but uh, and, and I'll say this in closing, since we're talking about books, um, you know, talking about the development of a national park site, we plan to have the park store open in the visitor center by January 23. That's exciting, right? So we can have books and all this. We're literally working on the logo right now and merch. You know, it's, it's a lot of fun to be a part of it. And, you know, we'll be launching our winter lecture series. And uh, the final speaker in March, by the way, is none other than Bill Marvel. 
and he'll wow. be speaking on Burnside, right? His Burnside Not biography, it. right? And he's obviously a very noted Civil War scholar that's wrote multiple biographies and, and books. His, I think his most recent one is the biography on Fitz John Porter, and it's tremendous. You know, he wrote one on Stanton, and he's just a, a prolific, uh, wonderful historian. And so, you know, we want to bring you know, experts into our spaces and share their knowledge, right? And so, uh, short story, long story, uh, but yeah, um, check out those two books. Check out our social media and website, and look forward to, uh, for y'all to uh, learn more about Ken Melton. Wow, no, uh, uh, the hype just keeps building. Everything you've been saying, uh, there's so much to be excited about. Awesome, awesome. Thank you for all that. And um, and Will, um, I'll leave it to you next uh, to talk about maybe some of your favorite books and research on this subject, and also give a shout out to uh, the Civil War Digital Digest and tuber events if you will okay well uh let's start with the books because sometimes uh as you saw the recent civil war digital digest find a good book 21st massachusetts i have two in front of me right now jason i hope you have the third because it's just not on the stack right here history of the 21st massachusetts uh volunteers in the civil war 1861 to 1865 with a name that long and drawn out yep History. I got it print on demand. It was written by Charles Walcott, W-A-L-C-O-T-T. Um, so that's the regimental history. Obviously, we watch out for rose-colored glasses in a document like this, but this one's pretty good and pretty enjoyable. That regimental uh, writer seemed to think they got slighted just about every time, so be ready to look at about a page and a half of him complaining how somebody else got the credit instead of them uh, about every chapter and a half. Um, with that, Andersonville, the Civil War Diary and Reminiscences of Private George A. Hitchcock, 21st Massachusetts Infantry. Um, this is fantastic. He actually did a drawing of what he carried. No, they were carrying Enfields through most of the war, at least eight of the companies. Um, were while some of the uh quartermaster returns and that are proving a little hard to find you watch hitchcock and he talks about my brother commissioned as a lieutenant i was cold in the winter of 62 into 63 so he gave me his frock coats and my sack coat now we start seeing this regiment is in a mix of the two hey when we're on the train some of the boys took their shelter tents and made hammocks out of them we have tents figured out. The, there's a lot of some of the stuff that's part and parcel to the living history world. How do we portray these fellas? Hitchcock's uh, book, Reading Between the Lines and Doing Some Detective Work, has been, an, one, a lot of fun. Two, there's a Civil War Digital Digest episode upcoming that we'll pull from late 62 out of this book and out of uh, Genco's book uh, in the Tornado of War about the 21st Michigan. Very similar situations, developing rations for both of these regiments in very different parts of the war. So we're able to do a digest episode about, hey, what did the soldiers do with two primary resources? Exact same story. One of them used cartridge box tins. One of them used pie plates. Stand by for that. Uh, for the event and for two more events, I don't need to give a shout out to a, a group of the five of us. We're there to work with folks like Mess Number One and build good events. What the shout out I will give is twoboreevents.com forward slash camp dash Nelson. 
that's where you'll find more information about this event and we'll keep updating it. Uh, we probably will open registration for the event. Uh, the organizing team thinks about November 1st. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for that, Will. And and for people uh, that may not be familiar with the Civil War Digital Digest, um, where all can they find that for now? Is it mainly uh, YouTube only for now? or uh... Uh, Well, YouTube only, and we have a Facebook presence. So you'll see publicity through, uh, through the Facebook page, and then we're on YouTube. Uh, we're starting to have some of our stuff stream at another platform but that's something Stephen, you and i can talk about on another day let's keep this one pointed right at camp nelson and right at living history awesome awesome thank you for that and now uh jason uh if you could uh tell us a few of uh maybe your recommended reading for this event and um as well as a little bit more about mess number one cool yeah i have to go back and correct myself I, obviously i can't go back and listen now but I had to look it up on my phone because I think I said the uh, Amaranth Society wrong earlier. If I don't correct that, Michaela will kill me. So uh, I'll just correct that there and, and keep going. Okay. So uh, but, say it properly uh, and correct it for me too. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the one that um, Will did not mention is personal recollections of a civil war of the civil war by one who took part in it, and that's Private James Madison Stone. Uh, that's another good one to pick up. And I did want to interject real quick that um, sort of cover that in the history of the 21st, Walcott, one of his grumblings is that they believe that they're like the first across the Burnside Bridge beats both the 51sts, but the official record does not say so. And so when he goes to write it, he notes that, you know, they were unfairly treated. So when Will talks about Walcott calling foul about every other event, you know, that they take part in as far as the actual recording of what they did, the Burnside Bridge is one of those moments. So uh, that's just something I, that, that I thought was kind of interesting. As far as mess number one, um, we're kind of in a, a transition stage because we had a really I guess you'd call them veteran guys like Eric Tipton, Ken Cornett, that were sort of stepping back a little bit. And so guys uh, like myself, John Wickett, Josh James, guys like that were stepping into th some of those positions. And I'm excited to say that um, that we've been able to move forward. And I appreciate groups like Tuber, like Will and them, who were willing to partner with us, even though guys that they knew really well, like Eric and Ken, were kind of stepping aside. Uh, I do appreciate that partnership. That means a lot to take a chance on some new guys to, to build. So, you know, doing that event, doing the rope drill event, uh, continuing to go to the highest caliber events that we can as far as First Minnesota Distant Thunder. Uh, we're really moving forward. I'm really excited about what mess number one is going to be uh, as we continue to grow. And, and we've always had a simple goal. We attend the best authentic Civil War events. And we've done that. And we're always looking for guys who want to come, be serious about their living history and, and really grow with us. Uh, our website is uh, messnumber1.com. That's M-E-S-S-N-O-1.com. Uh, also need to throw out a good shout out to um, a lot of Mess Number One's involvement uh, has been with the Authentic Campaigner. And with Eric Tipton kind of stepping aside, uh, John Wickett and I have run that uh kind of been up front with that for about the last year but i'm really excited about the fact that we've got a new group coming in in the liberty guards to sort of take over that gavin walter eric guys like that 
that's a big thing. And, and I do have a heart for the authentic campaigner, having worked with it quite a bit. And, and I can't help but to plug that as well, because I know Gavin and those guys, uh, they've got a lot to take on, uh, but they're going to do a great job. So I really can't help but to, to throw that out there as well, because I know it's going to be a really big moment when they take over January the 1st. Well, guys, um, this is awesome and uh, a lot to a lot to look at for all of you. Um, a lot of additional sources for those listening. And uh, before we say goodnight tonight, uh, does anyone have any uh, parting thoughts about Camp Nelson and and uh, for people listening? Well, I you know I just want to thank uh, you for hosting this, Stephen. It's been a pleasure. And then obviously love. I guess I saw Jason at Antietam. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we had an incredible experience. I think Stephen, you were just kind of remarking that's an unforgettable kind of moment experience that you'll never forget right and yeah for all the participants you know just being on a set like that and working with these very talented production crew members and uh, videographers photographers the director was amazing right and the assistant director really wonderful thoughtful people so just to be around that was really cool and it's funny because jason was talking about this we're we're lined up you know because i'm inspecting weapons and stuff like that we're lined up, obviously, on the southern side of uh, Burnside Bridge. And he's like, hey, there's the 21st Monument. And we're standing by it. And I'm just like, we're already talking about Camp Nelson, right? And so that was <laughs> yeah. just like really, really cool way to for us to kind of connect like that and, and, and look forward to this next year and this amazing experience that we're all going to share together. So, uh, yeah, look forward to it and look forward uh, to uh, meeting a lot more people over the next year and then having uh, your um your followers come and, and connect with us as well. So uh, thank you so much. And I appreciate y'all having me. Yep. Yes. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for all you do. And uh, Will and Jason, do you guys have any uh, parting messages, words for listeners? I'm, I mean, the, going back to what I'd said earlier, I'm, I'm excited because I look at Will and Steve and they're excited and that passion just, it just, res, it just flows out mm-hmm. to everybody. So we couldn't be happier Again, we couldn't be happier to see highest quality events being done in Kentucky. It's my home state. I love it here, obviously. Uh, and so, you know, that that's amazing. Stephen, thank you for having me on. We've talked several times about the podcast. I never dreamed that you'd actually come and say, hey, why don't you be on my podcast? So, and I, I'm humbled by that. I really am. But I, I'm excited about this. And I just can't wait. And I think you're right. Tonight's conversation really has charged us. And I think tomorrow and going into the next couple of weeks, you're going to see a lot of big things happen. Well, I mean, big things. There's the way to say it. Steve and his team are trusted with the newest unit of the National Park Service in the nation on the Civil War side we have a chance to help really show the story of the establishment of that site next year. It's a lot of fun. It's also a wonderful charge and an opportunity to help tell the story uh, about a part of history that we love in a place that could really use some attention. What a wonderful combination. Awesome. Awesome. And so Steve, Will, Jason, I want to thank all of you for uh, uh, spending this late night uh, talking about Camp Nelson with me. And uh, I've really, uh, it was a pleasure talking to all of you tonight. I've really been looking forward to this. Um, uh, so I really appreciate this opportunity tonight. And I want to thank you all. Thanks, thanks, you thanks for having us. We'll chat yeah. soon.
Awesome. Awesome. Well, good night, guys. Again, I uh, really appreciate it. Thanks again. And so much to look forward to for Camp Nelson. Those of you listening, um, all these references and websites and notes, uh, I'm going to put them in my show notes when we upload the episode. And But please uh, check out Camp Nelson. If you're out and about traveling, uh, find those find those hidden history sites that don't, you know, uh, there's a lot more than just the Gettysburgs and the Lookout Mountains and all that. Please check out all the all the sites that uh, every state has to offer um, for our history here in the United States. So I uh, really appreciate the work all of you are doing. Um, I can't wait to attend this event next year. Uh, I'm really looking forward to that. So with, with all that, I, I bid you all a good night. Thanks again, guys. Take care, Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Civil War Regiments podcast. If you like our content, please subscribe. You could find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, Overcast, Radio Public, and Google Podcasts. You can also follow or like us on Facebook at Shot and Shell Civil War Regiments Podcast.